0: You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from Lead Pastor Gare Jones. So we are continuing in our series of looking at encounters that Jesus has with ordinary people like you and me. As we're looking at who Jesus is, it's often really helpful to look at how he interacts with people, to really understand who that person is. And so over the summer, we've been looking at this series called Encounters with Jesus. A few weeks ago, in John chapter 9, we looked at, if you were here, Jesus healing a blind man. And the question that his disciples had was, why is this man blind? Is it because he's done something wrong? Is it because he's sinned? or maybe his parents sinned, and we looked at how Jesus responds to the great question of why suffering. So if you weren't here, you can go back to YouTube, listen to that. But Jesus heals this man, and we're going to look at the exact then next passage, because with this healing of this blind man, there becomes a little storm, a little argument, with some people called the pharisees who were the religious rulers of the day and jesus has to sort out this argument that this healing stirs up so let's look at it together in john chapter 9 i'm going to look at verse 13. they brought to the pharisees the man who had been blind but now was healed now the day on which jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a sabbath Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. Well, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied. And I washed, and now I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not even keep the Sabbath. But others asked, But how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you got to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, I think he's a prophet. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Look, give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man's a sinner. He replied, look, whether he's a sinner or not, I have no idea. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, look, I've already told you. And he did not listen Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, gosh, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man more blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do anything. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And then they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Son of man was Jesus' own name for himself. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man replied, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see But those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees were with him, heard him say this, and said, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. John's Gospel, where this passage is within, was written according to John, so that as you read all these stories, read about these miracles, John says that these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So John is writing his gospel to convince you, to help you see who Jesus really is, that you may believe, like this blind man, that he's not just a prophet, he's not just a teacher, But actually, he is from God. He is the Son of God. And so John chooses only seven miracles within his gospel because he sees in these seven miracles, we don't just see the power of God on display, but we see something of God on display. These miracles give us a window into the true nature of God. They symbolize something deeper than just, wow, Jesus can heal people. And so in this miracle, John is showing us something about Jesus himself and something about us, something about spiritual blindness, something about spiritual blindness, in particular blindness that prevents us from seeing the true nature, the true identity of Jesus, something gets in the way that prevents us from seeing that this guy is Jesus. We see this in the Pharisees, right? In verse 16, they totally and utterly reject Jesus being from God. They say, this man is not from God. And then later on, the disciples... um, The blind man says, hey, do you want to be his disciple? And it angers them even more. They flat out reject the identity of Jesus as God incarnate. There was something blocking them from seeing. And the point of this parable, sorry, the point of this story and John choosing this miracle is pointing to all of us saying, beware of spiritual blindness. That just as this man was physically blind, we can be spiritually blind to the true nature of who Jesus is. Now, don't get me wrong, there are legitimate reasons for us to actually question whether Jesus is who he says he is. The Christian faith is not a blind leap of faith, and if anyone walks around the world and says to you, hey, by the way, Jim, I'm actually God, you know, you would be right to go, dude, No. Or I need a lot of evidence. I need a lot, a a staggering amount of evidence to actually believe that you might be God. Jesus never shamed people for wanting evidence. He knew that what he was saying was extraordinary that God would become man to reveal himself to us and to come and save us. That God did not send a prophet. God did not send a wise teacher. God did not send a guru. God himself came in flesh to walk amongst us. That is staggeringly extraordinary. And it's right, therefore, that we do examine the evidence. It's right, therefore, that we do look at these claims. On the Alpha Course, which is our series of dinner kind of conversation evenings next ones in September where anybody from any walk of life can come and go hang on a minute I got some questions I want to ask them in a safe non-judgmental environment and so that's what alpha is we'd love you to come and one of the questions we look at is is Jesus who he says he is what's the evidence to say that Jesus is actually more than just a man more than just a teacher and for many of us, we haven't yet come to see Jesus as who he says he is because we haven't seen the evidence. I would say that's legitimate, but that's not what is going on with these Pharisees. You know, many people say to me, "Gareth, look, I'm not too sure if I believe this whole thing about Jesus being God." Tell you what, if he like would walk into the room, do a miracle or two, and show himself to me, then I'll believe. And it sounds right. It sounds plausible. The problem is the Pharisees are saying and showing the exact opposite. The Pharisees are actually right in front of Jesus. They're seeing the miracles. They're listening to his teaching. And yet there remains something blocking them. There remains some blindness. The Pharisees had all the proof that we normally would ask for and yet they refused to believe. They didn't actually want to believe. They were biased against believing. And that's not even just people who aren't Christians, that there may be a bias against believing. There may be a bias against actually seeing this to be true, but even Christians can be biased against it. I, if you've been raised in church, it's so common to go, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm honest. I'm not too sure if I think he's God. Or, or if he is God, some kind of lesser God. I'm not too sure I really buy into him being God. Jesus is pointing out that we can all have this Bias, and he points out as we read the story, and it's a long story. We only read a bit of it, that there is something in us which actually obscures our view to who he really is. None of us come to look at the evidence with twenty-twenty vision. The Pharisees were not approaching the evidence of who Jesus is with clarity and objectivity. But Jesus is pointing out, he says, beware that when you come to the decision of who Jesus is, you're probably bringing a bias to reject him. And the bias Jesus talks about is this word called sin. That's a biblical word that's been abused into kind of telling people to behave. And that's not really the essence of what the biblical word sin is. It really is simply Choosing to be your own God versus worshipping the true God. In this passage, what Jesus is drawing out is the condition of sin. The condition of wanting to be your own boss ultimately causes you to be blind to the claims of Jesus. Because the claims of Jesus are in direct opposition to your deepest Desires. Your deepest desire to be your own God. We see this back in Genesis, don't we, with Eve, when the devil whispered to Eve, saying, Look, oh, come on. Do you want to let God define what is right and wrong? You can do that. I think I can. And so she took control. She stepped out from under authority of God, and Adam and Eve together said, we want to be our own gods. It's the essence of what Jesus calls sin. We all approach the question of Jesus, not with clear objectivity, but with this magnetic pull in our hearts to want to put everything under our authority. And so what we do, right, we look at Jesus and look at all the evidence and go, well, actually, I'll reject him. Or most commonly, we'll reduce him. We'll say, ah, don't believe Jesus actually really meant to claim he was God. Um, Probably just meant to claim he was a prophet. Probably just meant to claim he was a wise teacher. Because if we reduce Jesus to that, then we're okay, right, because we can then stay in control. And the Pharisees, and I think everyone else who looks at the claims of Jesus, have this fear of it actually being true. Because if it's true, then it means I'm not fully my own boss. This is what Thomas Nagel, who's a prominent American philosopher and atheist, wrote in his book called The Last Word. He said, I really want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in that belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. He goes on to talk about the fear of giving up control. The Pharisees are being warned by Jesus this blindness is not simply based on lack of evidence but it's the bias in our hearts against anyone else being in charge. And isn't that the condition not only of the Pharisees but of 21st century Los Angeles? That the religious zeitgeist, the religious culture of our city is no one's the boss of me. That I get to define reality according to how I want. It's just the Pharisees extrapolated to a whole city. What is true is what I want it to be true. And your truth doesn't have to be my truth. It's the quintessential I want to be in charge of my own life. And if you read books like Charles Taylor, The Secular Age, etc., you'll realize it's a unique cultural moment that we're living in because this city is on the leading edge of this religious movement that is denying anything external to our own authority. We reject the tradition of our culture. We reject any societal definitions of what we should fit into. We reject what our parents say, that we, their expectations of what we must fulfill. We reject definitions in the dictionary if we don't like that definition. It's simply the fruit of what Jesus is saying is we all have this condition of sin, which means that we don't want anybody to be in control of our lives. We think that the way to joy, the way to happiness, the way to fulfillment is by fulfilling my desires only. And doing what I want, when I want. And so when Jesus comes along and he says, actually, you are created. You're created according to a purpose. You're created according to a way of life that I've designed for you. And the way of life is to follow me, not follow yourself. We go, whoa, dude, time out. I'm happy for you to help me when I'm in trouble. I'm happy for you to give me a bit of wisdom when I've lost my way. But don't ask me to give up control. We are afraid of giving up control. This is actually a fear that I deeply resonate with. I grew up in a system that actually had great expectations upon me. Which actually really suffocated me. I grew up in a culture which had very strong expectations of what you were to do depending on what kind of class system you were born into. It still exists today. Downton Abbey lives long. (laughs) So I was raised in the north of England, a traditionally poor community of England where you were not meant to expect much in life because of your lot in life was born in the north of England. There was tradition that would suppress people. I had a father who came out of deep poverty. I love him to pieces. He's with the Lord now. But he had deep expectations of me. And so I had these expectations of a father. Of success. Hanging over me. I felt I had to fulfill those expectations. Driving. I, had a, I was in a school. Which is kind of like Hogwarts without the fun, but we were all in these uniforms, the teachers had capes on, all this kind of stuff, and they had a very strong definition of what it meant to be successful. It's the old days where success was intellectual success either around history, economics, or arts. And here I was as a boy going, I love business. You're too good for business. I want to do these subjects. I'm good at them. Yes, but they're beneath you. I had these expectations of being something I wasn't. And actually, even worse, was, I, was in a, I, I kind of went to college, and even before college, I was in kind of a church that actually took away my own free will at times because the will of God was found in the will of the pastor. In those days, if you Google it, there was a name put to it. It was called, it's a weird name, heavy shepherding. Like the pastors were shepherds and wanted to stop you from making stupid decisions with your life. Which sheep can do? But in order to prevent that, they would be very forceful in what they thought you should do. And it also took on the, the ring of God says do this. It was brutal. People were afraid to make any decisions because they had to have the elders' approval. It got down to, what job should I do? Where should I live? Who should I marry? Took out the free will, and you put it on to the elder. Someone said to me recently, it kind of sounds a bit like a cult. Um, (laughs) Still working on that. But you know what? I resonate then with, oh my word, there are external pressures that suppress us. There are external expectations that can suffocate us. There are external words, voices that can overwhelm us. I get that. And I think in this moment, we're running from these unhelpful expectations and pressures. And sadly, for many of us, we put Jesus in that same category. Don't tell me what to do. Just like my dad, just like culture, just like that pastor, just like that husband, I got to break free because freedom is my way to happiness. Don't tell me there's a God who's going to be like them tell me what to do and ruin my life. That was where I got to when I was about 25. I was a lawyer in London and I thought, you know what? i got to throw off. I need to shake free so that I can live into who I am and not fulfill the desires of any parent of any pastor, of any school, of any God. I want to be free. But then came the question of Jesus. Therefore, is Jesus like them? And I remember a friend of mine inviting me to an Alpha course. I didn't want to go, but he said to me there was lots of good-looking girls there, so reluctantly I went. (laughs) Because I genuinely wanted to know if Jesus was one of those external authorities, that would ruin my life. There was a nagging feeling I still had of, is there a God? Is there a loving God? Or is there a God who's just going to be like them? I don't know what it, I think it was around week 4 of the alpha course the speaker cuz someone just gives a little talk and then you discuss it in groups and anything is okay to say thankfully I had lots of opinions and the speaker gave this illustration which cracked open my blindness to who Jesus was he challenged us he said look is freedom about being fully autonomous, or is freedom living in line with how you were created? And he gave this illustration. He said this, some years ago, when my eldest son was eight years of age, he used to play soccer on Clapham Common, which is this park in London. A man called Andy Busk was their coach, and he was the referee. And one day I went along to a game and Andy Busk hadn't turned up. So they kind of all press-ganged a referee, and that was me. But I had a number of difficulties with this. First of all, at the time on Clapham Common, there were no soccer pitches. There were no markings for where the goals were or where the lines were. So I just put down a couple of sweaters for the goals. And the other thing was I didn't have a whistle. And then the boys didn't have different colors. They were just in their kind of ordinary clothes. And tragically, I didn't know the rules. And nor did I know the boys' names. I knew my son's name, but I didn't know the other boys' names. But the match started, and one boy shouted, the ball's out! Another boy shouted, no, that's not out. I didn't know. And I'm kind of a non-confrontational person anyway, so I just said, play on. And then someone did a foul, and someone said, hey, that's a foul. And someone said, that's not a foul. I didn't know whether it was a foul or not. So I said, play on. Literally, there were three or four small boys lying on the ground, and the place looked like a battlefield. But eventually, to my immense relief, I saw Andy Busk arriving on his bike. Andy Busk had a whistle. He knew the boys' names. He put them into teams. And every time there was a foul, or the ball went out, he blew the whistle, stopped the game, and he imposed the rules. Now, were the boys more free when I was refereeing? And there was total chaos. Or were they more free when there was someone in charge and there was a definite set of rules? And within that rules, They were free to enjoy the game. It was at that moment, I felt the light bulb go on. That when Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, he was like this Andy Busk, arriving into the chaos of this world where everybody's free but getting hurt. And he came as the author of life, the author of the game of life. He says, I have come that you may have life. That true fulfillment, true joy is not found in being free of God, but actually coming under the loving Rule of God. What if there's a God who loved you? What if there's a God who wanted humanity to flourish? What if there's a God who looked at the mess of the game of life in this world and said, I've got to come on my bicycle to Bethlehem. I've got to bring my whistle. Not to spoil the fun, but to bring the fun. To actually bring joy. To bring health, to bring fulfillment, to bring freedom, that true joy could it be by giving up authority and giving it to Jesus. John Mark Homer, who's a friend of ours, who's a pastor in Portland, said this, the teachings of Jesus, therefore, aren't just the right way to live, they're the best way to live. And as a disciple of Jesus, all of Jesus' teachings sex, marriage, love, divorce, fidelity, nonviolence, anxiety, money, love, generosity, possessions Jesus' teachings on everything are not just arbitrary things he wants you to do, but they are the best way to be human in the world. Jesus is the best living example of a thriving, flourishing human being. His teachings, Are the map to which, to what he called the life that is truly life. This is the invitation of Jesus. That yes, there's a bias in all of our hearts to go, I'm not too sure what's going to happen if I give up control. But I got to be honest. Having control isn't working out well. It's like a battlefield. I wonder if there's a God who loves us, who can come and bring peace, who can bring joy. The problem is we have to admit that we need God. And this is again back to this miracle. It was only the blind man who admitted he needed help. And often it takes all of us to get to a place where we realize it's a battlefield, where we realize that actually being in control ourselves isn't working out, that we realize this is not healthy. It's only then that we go, actually, maybe I see our need for God. Why, at the very end, the Pharisee said, "What well, are we blind too? And he says this very cryptic thing. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Very complicated sentence, but the essence of that is simply this. Until you realize you're blind, you can never be free. Until you think that it's okay for you to be in utter control of your life, until you stop thinking that the best way is your way, You won't see. You won't see. You're blind to your need until you realize that being in control isn't working out well. And that's why, of course, so often the people who turn to Jesus are the desperate blind men and women, are the desperately hurting, because they've come to an end of their own resources. We don't turn to God until we realize, I can't do it. I remember growing up, I never played golf growing up. I wasn't in that kind of community. Golf was for really rich people in my community. In fact, I don't ever remember watching golf, ever. It's just out of my league. It's kind of like playing horse polo. It's like I don't know, who plays horse polo? And I went to London to be a lawyer, and I was working in the law firm of London. I'd never picked I think I picked up a golf stick once, you know, and like picked it up like this type thing, you know. I didn't know what to do. And I remember sitting in the law firm, and the partner of my department came in and said, Gay, yeah, yeah, gay, you're great with clients. We'd love you to come on a weekend in a couple of weeks to the south of France. We're going to entertain some clients. We've got a private villa. We're going to eat at these Michelin star restaurants. And it's just basically showing them around the south of France and building a relationship. We'd love you to come. Can you come? I went, absolutely, I can come. (laughs) And just as he was leaving the office, he said, oh, oh, I forgot. It's a a golfing weekend. You're a good golfer, right? And I go, absolutely, I'm a good golfer. (laughs) Panic. And so the next weekend, it was two weekends, So the next weekend, I went back to see my parents with the sole intention that I knew, the only golf course I knew was down the road from where my parents lived. I didn't know what to do. So I remember I went to the ATM, I got out like 500 pounds, which is about 800 dollars in cash. I went into the golf shop and put down a stack of money and I said, I need to learn how to play golf today. And went, excuse me? He said, I'm in a golf tournament next weekend in the south of France. I need you to teach me to play golf today. And he looked at me with incredulity, anger of how would I disparage the game of golf like this? But then the $800, I went, I can help you. And so for the next 24 hours, I learned to play the basics. But here's the thing, he said to me at the very start, he said, this is only gonna work if you admit you don't know what you're doing. Like, I I admit it. He goes, show me your natural swing. (laughs) Right, admit you know nothing. You bring nothing to the table. I go, you're absolutely right. And for the next 24 hours, he just said, do this. Do that. Stance like this. Hold it like this. Never once did I say, who do you think you are? (laughs) Never once did I even think, hang on a minute, dude. What about this? I knew... I was blind and I needed an expert. I knew that left to my own devices, I would be in trouble. I knew that if I'd gone out there with my own authority, no matter how free I was, I was free to mess up and ruin it. I needed to come under someone else's authority to teach me the beautiful game of golf. I knew that I had to surrender my own authority. Could it be that we're so struggling in life, we're so struggling in the world because we're still hanging on to our blindness? that we know best. That even in the face of a loving God who came and said, I'm going to prove to you that I'm here to love you. I only want what's best for you. I've come to actually die for you. I've actually, look what I'm going to do on the cross for you. Can you just trust me that when you follow me, you will find life, the life you've always wanted? For the blind man, he said, I'm in. But for the Pharisees, the tragedy is, we've got this. We don't need you. I just wonder where you are today. There are three types of people in the room today. There are those who go, yeah, I've seen. I've seen that I need him. I've seen that his way is the way to life. I want to encourage you to press even more in that maybe there's areas of your life where you still haven't trusted him with that area, but can you trust him with that area as well? Maybe you're here today going, no, And I can empathize with maybe it's afraid of maybe some things have happened to you by other people's authority that have actually crushed you and you're never going to give up authority again. I understand. I would just invite you to maybe take some time this week to say, Jesus, if you are real, if you do love me, then help me believe. Help me. And then there may be a few today that you go, you know what? I'm like that blind man. I know I can't do this. And I actually want to take that step today and say, like him, Lord, I believe. Like me, back on that Alpha course, I went, you know what? Yet I've been hurt. Yet I've been controlled. Yet it has not gone well for me. But I'm not going to put Jesus in that box. I believe And I actually do want to follow him. And maybe that's you this morning. And the very simple thing is to just pray a prayer that says, Jesus, like that man, I believe. So let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.